Chapter 12 Vesh had never thought of himself as someone who wrung his hands, but here he was, doing exactly that. He had never been good at being nervous. He was it so seldom, he had no practice, and it was a state he could never properly fabricate for training purposes. It seemed like such a useless state. It had too much in common with fear. He suspected it actually was fear. But fear he had been made to think of as something almost positive. It's just nerves. There was nothing just about this at all. He could barely think. His hands needed to do something else. He picked down a few of his jars of tea and absent-mindedly put some of the dried herbs into a small sieve. The motions did make his hands stop ringing, but annoyingly little to settle his nerves. The ghosts didn't help. It seemed they couldn't tell the difference between nerves and danger either. They always fretted nowadays. They were worried about him. He knew he had given them cause to be, but it didn't make it less annoying. Especially when they did what they did now, try to hide because they noticed he was on edge. It somehow only managed to make their presence even more noticeable. All because he couldn't tell who was coming. The ghosts on lookout said they weren't allowed to know. Someone must be blocking it. And now they were on their way here. He was not very fond of that combination of things occurring at the same time. With any luck, it was the work of an illusionist. That was the least terrifying one of the three strands of magic he knew could create that sort of blockage. He thought about that statement for a while. He changed his mind. Abandoning his attempt at tea-making in defeat, he turned around, looking about his home. He could tell it wasn't tidy. It wasn't that state where people had remarked on it. He unsuccessfully tried to remember a pattern his furniture had been in that had caused someone to say it was tidy. With a small sigh, he started to simply move things around. He had seen people tidy up, and moving things around seemed to be at least one part of the process. This is it, Taryn said. Lady Kai looked at her, eyebrows lifted. He's not the tidiest person, all right. She shrugged, jumping down from the driver's seat, moving to scratch her energetic dead kega behind one drooping long ear. The animal made an unsettling deep noise that ended on a sharp trumpet-like squeal. With a confident stride, Taryn marched towards the little cottage. It lay in a surprisingly idyllic-looking bit of the marshlands they had been travelling through for half a day. Lidikai had been on edge the entire time, very sure the simple carriage, that already seemed as if it could collapse at any moment, would be swallowed by the treacherous sides of the road with every turn. That hadn't happened, and now they were standing in front of this little hut on poles in the marsh. Although there were definitely signs of the untidiness Taryn had mentioned, that was not what Lidikai's doubtful look had referred to. The place simply looked entirely abandoned. Brown, slimy vines covered the windows and walls, looking as if they were slowly and successfully choking the entire house. That didn't stop Taryn. She decisively walked up the creaking, swinging wooden ramp leading to the back of the house, 
Lady Kai remained besides Myamain, and Crow's head was peeking out from the carriage. Not a sound came from where Taryn had disappeared. Lady Kai looked at Crow, who shrugged. Well, fuck, they heard Taryn say loudly from inside the house. She came out again, around the corner, and walked back to them. Makes you wish that ban on teleportation could be lifted, huh? She said, climbing up into the driver's seat again. Derry was dreaming again. She was standing on the lake. It vibrated underneath her feet, rippled, and suddenly flowed up to surround her, like a room with walls of clear, still water. There she was, reflected in multitudes. It didn't look anything like her, but it was her. She would recognize herself, looking like she did in the water, anywhere. But she didn't look like that. She had never looked like that. A sharp ripple in the surface, and the image changed. She didn't want to see this. She didn't move, but she could see her mirror image staring herself down. This was how she remembered seeing herself. Blonde hair, brown skin, directionless green eyes, predatory grin. Then she saw herself the first time she broke a bone deliberately. It had gone so far, this feeling of her body not being hers. She had to do something to reclaim it. She remembered thinking that thought. That first time she broke a bone deliberately. She couldn't reflect when she was awake. Not that she wanted to, but she couldn't either. When she was awake, memories were like trying to hold on to furious eels. Did it work? Had it worked? This sculpture she had turned herself into. Did she feel as if it belonged to her now? She supposed it did. Leaning closer to the water, she brought her fingers up to the hex brand on her forehead. She could still see the remnants of the tandia underneath, a stylized mortal heart, the symbol of healing. There are many ways to try and heal. The way things looked around Vervesh's old house was, Lydikai would never have guessed there was an actual city anywhere near. But there was, and it wasn't a small one. Terence said the usual way to arrive was from the north. Most people wouldn't go through the swamp. Lydikai, for once, did not blame most people. They were back on the limestone of the Alva Trail, and before them towered, quite literally, Everglade Lith. Lydikai had heard of it, but even the stories hadn't done it justice. He had heard that Everglade Lith had started as a tiny village, 
a set of houses that had evolved into several houses stacked on top of the first ones, supported by the surrounding dense forest. Supposedly, this had been going on for hundreds of years. Lydica couldn't see the top of the wall. It disappeared up into the hazy verdure, and the closer one came to it, the more impossible it was to make out. Damn. He could hear Crow breathe behind him. Lydicai turned to Taran to escape yet another height-induced vertigo. You've been here before, he said. She nodded. Many times. When Vesh still lived here. Which, I want to stress, wasn't that long ago. We came here now and again. He prefers having company when he stocks up on necessities. And I came here alone as well, when he needed a break from me. It's a nice place. Well, depending on your preferences. It suits me, at least. Didikai couldn't say he got any other first impression than... a lot. Everywhere, he saw something worth looking at. An ingenious way to tie two walls together, someone's intricate solution of hanging their laundry, though how someone got anything dry in this moisture, he had no clue. Ori climbing across windows on the duckweed-covered wooden walls in ways that made his breath hitch. The whole tall structure was positively crawling with life of all kinds. No one in the stables batted an eye at the fact that Myramain wasn't alive. It seemed that Taryn were familiar with the people in there. She exchanged words, a few favours were mentioned as payment, and then she was done, motioning for Lidikai and Crow to follow her. Taryn led them to a sturdy wooden rectangle hanging off a combination of ropes and wheels. She nodded to an Ori next to it, who wolf-whistled loudly, causing Lidjika and Crow to jump, and another five Ori to appear from around the corner. They moved into position around the rope and wheels construction, and seemed to be in the middle of a vivid conversation about a piece of music. Hold tight, Terran said quickly, pointing at a few rope handles around the sides of the platform. Lidjika and Crow obeyed, just in time to stay upright as the lift jerked into motion and brought them upwards inside of a hollow between the vertically stacked houses. They came to an opening, and to a stop there. It led out into a passage made of ropes, thick vines, and wood. The sun didn't make it in here. Instead, there hung little lanterns everywhere, spreading a yellow and green light across the entire place. Obviously familiar, Taryn set off along the passage, Lidikai stumbling after her and Crow, unable to not get stuck in impressions. Side passages winded off all around. In some places, the passage opened up to a small square, a courtyard full of playing children, a lively game of cards, or a musical rehearsal. At one of those side passages, Taryn turned, and as Lady Kai caught up, he saw that she had stopped in front of a house lodged at the back of a small yard. The lanterns were hanging here as well, but in even more colours, red, purple and pink among the ubiquitous yellow and green. Above the double doors and small square windows sat a large wooden sign, partially claimed by sticky vegetation. The other tavern, it said. I asked. They refused to answer, Taryn said when Lady Kai looked up at the sign. In fact, they almost banned me. <laughs> Though, she squinted. Actually, that was for something else. Anyway... Pretty safe bet they know where Vash has gone in there. And by the moons, I need a drink. 
Taryn shoved Crow and Lydikai into a little cubicle in a corner of the tavern, telling them she would get things sorted. Drinks, info, whatever, as she put it. The place was as green and yellow as the outside. Chandeliers made of more rope, vines and glass, and decorated large branches adorned the ceiling and walls. Low above the table that Lydikai and Crow were each side of now hung an intricate light-shedding contraption. The light in there moved along the construct in a little glass tube that coiled around vines, black stone details and hemp. Ivali design. He wondered if they could be made portable. Memories chased each other through his mind like the shining bubble in that lamp. Time stretched in strange ways, some things sharp, others unclear, perhaps unimportant. When he and Crow first met, there had been something about a light of some kind. He had a flickering memory of being angry. What for? He remembered the anger starkly, but not the reason for it. That felt typical of him, though he admittedly wondered why. Look where chance has brought us, huh? Lydikai said, to untangle from that weird, lost feeling. Crow sharply let out their short, breathy laugh. They shared a look across the table, Crow unable to stop an apologetic smile from brushing over their face. The silent communication was brought to an abrupt halt by Taryn putting down two tankards filled to the brim with dark, foamy liquid with a bang. Sorry, sorry, she said, sucking her teeth, wiping the stuff she spilled quickly with her arm. Lady Kai noticed she did not have a drink for herself, despite her expressed need earlier. Okay, so I know where Vash lives now. Bit of a hike northward. Should only take half a day or so. And one room each for you. She fished two keys out of a belt pouch. We're spending the night, and I am continuing my drinking over there. She nodded in a very unclear direction. Don't kill each other, she grinned and walked across the room, the middle of which had turned into a little dance floor. Next to it sat two Ori playing retina, one of them keeping the beat with the stomping of a bell-wearing foot. Lidikai followed Taryn with his eyes as best he could. Among the crowd, he could tell she was sitting down by a table opposite someone who had an impressive mane of red hair, but he couldn't make out more than that. Knowing Taryn, he knew both what her rushed behaviour and that mane of hair meant. Well, we've most certainly lost her for the night, he said with a small chuckle. Crow turned to where Lydica had looked. Ah, they said, smiling a little. The music picked up in both volume and speed, but having a conversation over a table was still not a problem. This being a ferris... What does that mean, exactly? Lydica looked at Crow. This topic being brought up again was very far from expected. It was probably an attempt at easing the still palpable tension between them. Well, as I said, I think, while being an insensitive ass, if I remember correctly, <laughs> Crow chuckled, but it lacked the usual sting. It's the term used in institutes for Ori who don't need founts to focus magic. Admittedly, I don't know if that translates, however, since no institute teaches practice of deception magic. 
I haven't really looked into it myself, Crow said. I mean, it was obvious that something was wrong or, you know, unusual compared to how Mirva did it. And others after that as well, of course. They trailed off, pausing. It's weird. Almost every time I've run into other Ori who use this kind of magic... There's no sense of companionship. No, oh, hey, we did the same thing. Want to share trade secrets? It's just even more paranoia. You're aware of what the other can do, so you know you have to watch your back. Me and Mirva noted we did it differently, and then just made use of it the best we could. Formed a sort of pact not to use it on each other, but... They took a sip from their tankard, tasting it, making a face of approval. Lady Kai smelled his tankard. It smelled sugary, bready, some sort of ale. He took a sip. It was a lot sweeter than he both anticipated and liked, but it did other things that were of a higher priority. He could definitely use some dulling of everything right now. I suppose that's the practical reason institutes avoid it he said. No matter what superstition-related reasons they prefer to give, even if they don't do deception magic, however, Ferrision still not accepted in institutes. That seems strange. The way you said it, Ferrision sounded like, I don't know, prodigies. Sounds like something institutes would approve of. It does. <laughs> Doesn't it? Lidikai said. Or, I suppose it does when you've never been in one. The thing institutes value the most is conformity. Ferrisai represent the opposite of that. They would never stay in their lane. <laughs> it's the reason I fit in for so long. The reason why Taryn never would. Why you never would. You stayed in your lane. Crow's whole face contorted in disbelief. Well, not in the end. Or, initially, he waved his bony hand as if to disperse the argument in the air. Overall, I made up for that by being extraordinarily mediocre in skill. Crow's eyes narrowed. Draining a whole burning village of fire and turning it on, what, ten mistmass is just... mediocre. Lidikai didn't immediately reply. He took another swig. Very well, fine, no. But what you're referring to, it's not valued in institutes. It just shows exactly how inept I am. I don't have enough control, I exaggerate. My magic is everything or nothing. All it's proof of is that I am a failure in everything the institutes teach. He talked too fast, too many memories hitting at once causing him to feel far away. So I decided to stay in my lane. And would you know, I failed at that too. He laughed a little, but it fell off his face instantly. He could tell Crow was looking at him. To being spectacular fucking failures, Crow said, leaning in over the table, knocking their wooden tankard against Lidikais. His laugh came short and effortlessly this time. 
and he lifted the tankard to crow. Being spectacular fucking failures. Taryn had been hungry, so she had ordered a plate of deep-fried roots along her ale. She had eaten half of it. She had drunk half her ale. Right now, however, all of that was halfway up her throat again because there was a very sharp knee in her solar plexus and a much sharper knife against her throat. The knee and the knife belonged to an Ori called Looper. Lupa had hair that was more of an entity than individual strands of hair, and Taryn had instantly wanted to bury her whole being in the thick red mess. She had large bright green eyes and freckles all over her face. Her skirts were so many and so flowy, Taryn didn't know how they stayed up on her thin hips. Taryn didn't have many strategies for flirting, so she usually suggested playing cards. Therefore, she had challenged Looper to a game of tell. Taryn was a very good tell player, and Looper was a very, very bad loser. Knife to your throat bad, apparently. You are cheating, Ratuya. Looper hissed close to Taryn's face. No need for insults. Taryn said as carefully as she could, larynx brushing against the blade as she spoke. I'm not a Ratuya. It seemed to catch Lupa off guard, the pressure of the knife easing up. She tilted her head to the side, with a smile on her face. So you did cheat, she said. Sure, if that gets the knife off my throat. Lupa cocked an eyebrow at Taryn, still smiling. Slowly, she removed the knife, only to carefully draw it along Taryn's jawline. Taryn allowed herself to doubt the failure of her flirting. Lupa folded the knife, putting it down her neckline. She didn't move, however, still sitting on the table, very close, one foot on each side of Taryn's body on the bench. Lupa leaned back to grab her glass of mead, draining it in one go. Not Eritrea, eh? You look like one. I know. It's very good cover. Taryn knew that to most people, the difference between the mage from the institutes and one from outside of them was not relevant. But to people inside the institutes, looking the part was crucial. And Taryn mostly knew how to do that. Aha, uh-huh, Lupa said, her eyes narrowing. Before Taryn could stop her, one of Lupa's thin fingers pulled at the neck of Taryn's shirt, and she jokingly looked down it. It surprised Taryn, admittedly. She had definitely meant that the cover was for her hex brands, but she hadn't imagined Lupa would interpret it that way. The scrawny Ori didn't have a single visible fount. Taryn had no obvious reason to think she knew anything about either founts or hexes. Where Lupa looked now, she would definitely see some of Taryn's hexes. This could go one of many, many ways. 
Lupa let go of the grey linen of Tarrant's shirt with a flinch. Then she dramatically put a hand over her mouth, obviously smiling through it. Never had one of those before, she said quietly, leaning forward again, close enough for her lips to brush against Tarrant's. Glad you approve, Taryn muttered with a grin, put her arms around Lupa's waist and stood up. A genuine startled squeal came out of Lupa, several octaves higher than her speaking voice. She clasped her hand over her own mouth where she hung on the much taller Ori's arm, glowering at Taryn before lightly mock-slapping her cheek. Then her spindly fingers snaked into a tighter grip behind Taryn's neck. You are coming with me, Taryn said with Lupa hoisted up on her hip, making off towards her room. Lydikai was, admittedly, a little drunk. He was in his room in Evergadelith's tavern, or one of the taverns in the town at least, which had turned out to be more of an inn than a tavern. He was alone. He looked about himself in the green and yellow lantern-lit room. Yes, he was alone. This reminded him of something. Staring into his own reflection in the framed piece of silvery metal on the wall, he tried to make his mirror image tell him what it reminded him of. The inn in Nora's. That's what it was. An uncomfortable chill went through him. He shook it off as best he could. He looked the same as he had then, he supposed. His hair was still a mess, even more so. He felt different looking at himself now, though. It was difficult to tell exactly how. And, to be perfectly honest, he thought it might have something to do with the ale. But some of it didn't. He had thrown off his robe as he came into the room. His black linen shirt and trousers had been washed in streams and basins and the taps in cities throughout this simultaneously so long and short journey. They were wrinkly and had some stains that refused to go out. His wiry forearms hung from the wide elbow-length sleeves. On the inside of his wrists were the symbols of life and death. Hidden by his shirt was the rhombus of dreams between his collarbones. Even he was marked with remnants of a more superstitious time. Once those symbols were given to children for balance between you and the three prime aspects of mortal existence or some such nonsense, his brain went for quotes. Now it just marked you as belonging to an apex. They weren't entirely intact on him, those symbols, though. The base of the triangle of life and one side of the circle of death were both broken up by old burns. That was different. He had always hidden them, those burns, those symbols, Worn armbands, wrist protectors, long sleeves, whatever. 
It wasn't exactly uncommon for elemental practitioners to have a few or many scars from spells getting out of hand. However, to have those specific symbols be marred by it, something so close to your hands, that illustrated a certain indefensible kind of recklessness. He already got enough comments about how he was destined to fail, based on moon superstition and, to be fair, every other kind of superstition still floating around in the APCs, it seemed. He didn't have to announce it by showing those scars as well. But now... He looked at his wrists and the way the scraggly texture of the burns reflected light. Apparently... Now, he didn't mind. It was rare that Taryn wasn't the first to leave a shared bed, but this time, she had been beaten. Sticky eyelids reluctantly parted into the sunlit room. Curtains not drawn, everything too bright. She hadn't had a lot to drink, but her headache was magnificent. The flashes of pain through her left side were as bad as usual in the morning, but not worse, at least. Her neck felt as if she'd slept without a pillow entirely. Uh, She rolled over on her back. Other parts of her body hurt as well, but that was a pleasant echo. She was fairly sure Lupa hadn't left early to signal dissatisfaction. It was just that kind of meeting. Moonlight brief. She'd been damn cute, though. Knife-edge cute. <laughs> 